Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And this week, well, there is, I guess there is some important crap that has happened in the world. Like there was the State of the Union the other day. I'm not going to lie with you guys. I don't give two Fs about the State of the Union. It's really just a useless tradition at this point in which the president can come up and just say whatever speech they wants to say, say whatever kind of propaganda he wants to say. And then within a week, everyone has forgotten about everything in regards to the State of the Union. And no one brings up the State of the Union of any particular year ever. It's always like forgotten within a week. Unless there's like some random drama, like, let's say, Trump, Trump speech or some crap like that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is just me saying, no, we're not going to talk about the State of the Union. We'll probably never talk about any State of the Unions. I think that they're a big waste of time. In any case, what I do want to talk about is the major geopolitical event, potentially of our lifetimes, at least so far of our lifetimes, because we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Russo-Ukraine war, which is incredible. Can you guys believe that it's been one year since this war has started? You know what they say, time makes fools of us all, and I feel like it is definitely making a fool of us all in this particular instance. I thought going throughout this month, it would, I thought that going throughout this month, it would be a good time to reflect on what has happened in this past year and potentially look at what might happen in the future. There's a couple different topics for the next several episodes going up to the anniversary that I want to talk about. But today in particular, I want to talk about why peace is extremely unlikely right now and why peace will never happen between Russia and Ukraine until this is resolved. So what am I talking about right now? What I am talking about is the little peninsula, this little spit of land, which is, of course, the Crimean Peninsula. As most of you guys probably know, the Crimean Peninsula is a small peninsula which juts out of the mainland of Ukraine and is very close to Russia. It juts out into the Black Sea, and it has had a lot of significance historically. It's had a lot of significance culturally and throughout its existence and throughout human history, this little peninsula has changed hands between so many different cultures and so many different peoples that it has quite interesting and fascinating history once you dive into it. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of Crimea today, but for our purposes right now, it remains the key issue which negates peace between the Russians and Ukrainians because it has extraordinary significance to both sides, and neither side is willing to cede any ground on the issue under any circumstances. So we'll begin by stating the obvious, which is why Ukraine is not willing to move on Crimea, why Ukraine is not willing to give up Crimea, because under all internationally recognized law, Crimea is Ukrainian territory. And there's no reason they should give it up. And I don't think the Ukrainians would ever accept any leader that is willing to give up the Crimean Peninsula, especially considering since uh, just some context here. Again, I'm sure most of you guys know this kind of stuff, but it's always good to just lay the groundwork a little bit. As I'm sure most of you guys know, in 2014, Russia occupied Crimea and ever since then has officially annexed the territory into the Russian Federation through this sort of sham referendum. And ever since 2014, again, almost 10 years ago now, Russia has controlled the peninsula effectively. Again, despite the fact that this remains 
internationally recognized Ukrainian territory. Currently, the Ukrainians have had no sovereignty over it for the past decade because, again, the Russians occupied it in 2014. Regardless, though, before that, it was recognized Ukrainian territory by everybody, including Russia. And the fact of the matter is, is that the overwhelming amount of Ukrainians today remember when Crimea was part of their country, when the country was unified. And I don't think that any of them are particularly enthusiastic in giving that up. Nor should they be, because again, international law is on their side, and the occupation of Crimea really does make a mockery of international law and internationally recognized norms of diplomacy. But the Russians have effectively said, we don't care what everyone else thinks. Our government is here. Our soldiers are here. The Ukrainian government isn't here. We effectively control it despite what the rest of the world thinks. Regardless though, what is most people's initial reaction when something is taken from you by force? It is to try and effectively take it back through any means necessary. If you got to get your friends together, if you got to fight somebody to get it back, you're going to do what you need to do to get it back, particularly if it's something very important to you. That's to say that the kind of hard power diplomacy, which Russia so famously employs, doesn't exactly engender a lot of gratitude to the country. And it, in this circumstance, obviously engenders a lot of bitterness and resentment of the Ukrainian people long before this war ever began. And that resentment has just been building and building and building over the past decade. And now, of course, we're at the point where if the momentum continues to be in Ukraine's favor, they have a realistic shot at retaking the peninsula. And we'll talk about how they could potentially retake the peninsula again later on in the show. Anyway, the point here ultimately being is what has happened is that Russia said Crimea is ours now. If you want it back, come and take it back. And Ukraine is saying, okay, you want to play that game? We're going to play that game. The combined facts that this, that this territory is again recognized by virtually everybody as Ukrainian territory and the resentment and bitterness over how Russia took it from them, which has been building up over the past decade, effectively makes it impossible for any Ukrainian leader to cede the peninsula and maintain his position of leadership among the Ukrainian people. I think that they have been really spoiling for a fight over that particular maneuver. And not just over that, it's for the centuries upon centuries of repression and harm inflicted on Ukraine by Russia. Again, this resentment has just been building up. And we're at the point now where I think that we're not going to have a resolution until there's a winner of this fight, that no, no side is willing to give up right now as things look while they still have gas in the tank. So yeah, I think they want the issue decisively ended before they consider any kind of peace negotiations. So now let's move on to talk about why Russia wants this peninsula so badly and why Russia is absolutely in no way ready to give up or consider the possibility of ceding Crimea back to Ukraine because so much has been invested into this seizure by not just the Russian state, but of course, by the leader itself, Vladimir Putin. A man who has effectively staked 
his entire political career on the 2014 annexation of Korea as his crowning achievement as the leader of the Russian state. So if he loses it, I can't see how he would survive politically. It would be such a disaster that there's no way that he effectively continue to lead Russia at that point with his crowning achievement toppled over. But there's quite a number of different layers here into why Russia wants Crimea and why they are so vehement in holding on to it and why they're, again, not going to cede it anytime soon. And let's go over some of those layers. The first one is it has historical significance to Russia and the way Russia views itself. There's a YouTuber out there, Vlad Vexler, and I'm going to obviously shout him out right here. Because in the background, I always try and find some sort of appealing still frame of if I've got somebody in the background. So I hope I did you okay there, Vlad. But in any case, he does a lot of great content regards to history and geopolitics and how they interweave with the war in Ukraine and this particular video, why losing Crimea will destroy Putin is definitely one to check out in regards to one of those. Again, I, like I talk about interwoven layers into why Crimea is important for Putin. But what's really interesting in this video is he talks about effectively because that a lot of these areas around the Black Sea were colonized by Greek colonists and Greek culture way, way, way back in the day in the Hellenic times, right? Alexander the Great type of times. Because these areas were colonized by Greeks and had this Greek culture established there, because of that, Russia wants to capitalize on that kind of cultural significance, on that tradition of Greek thought and philosophy by effectively owning this area and trying to tie their roots back to that Greek tradition. I thought that was a very interesting point because that's not something I've really heard Russians trying to tie themselves to that, that Greek culture, those sort of Hellenic traditions. One thing you do, do hear sometimes is you hear that Russia views itself as kind of the third Rome, as the extension of the Orthodox faith and the extension of the Roman Empire, which the torch was transferred, of course, from Rome to Byzantium. And then when Byzantium fell, it transferred up to Moscow and uh, the Russians, and they became the effective hegemon of the Orthodox religion. So if you've ever heard Russia refer to itself as the third Rome, that's what they're referring to is that this idea that the Orthodox traditions of Christianity have been passed on through the eras and now it lies at the hands of the Russians type of thing. In any case, I just really wanted to bring up that point because I thought it was very interesting because before I listened to this video, I always thought that the Russian historical roots in Crimea just reached back to the Tsarist era, effectively. They're trying to reach back to those times when Russia was strong and powerful and had the empire and all that and all that stuff. But Vlad's saying, no, it's deeper than that. I, I just think it's very interesting. But before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about the Greek colonization of Crimea because it's pretty interesting. And for example, you can see on this map back here that they are not just dotted the coast of Crimea, but Bulgaria and Romania and modern Ukraine and all around the Black Sea. And if we, sorry, my head's kind of blocking this right now, but if we move down, we can see that I was wrong that it's, they colonized this area much before the times of Alexander. The first colonies are reaching all the way back to the 7th century BC. Yeah, way, way back. They've been there for a long time, centuries and centuries. Before we move on, they just got a couple pictures 
of some of the modern day runes and coins that they found. This one is from the earliest known colony. I'll try and pronounce it. Capium. Sorry. And this is a fact, this was the seat of their government. And this is what the, the runes look like today. This is the seat of the government there at the time. Moving on here, this is actually right outside uh, Sevastopol. This is the colony of Trusanus, Trusanius. Sorry, my Greek pronunciation, not the best. But in any case, uh, we can see right here that the uh, cathedral overlooks these ancient ruins of the colony. And not only that, apparently this colony was actually, according to this little blurb here on Wikipedia, during much of the classical period, it was a democracy ruled by a group of elected archons and a council called the Guri. As time passed, however, the government grew more oligarchic with power concentrated in the hands of the archons. Up to the fourth century, Trenosis remained a small city and then it expanded northwest into Crimea, incorporating the colony of Kirkantia and constructing numerous fortifications. Okay, cool. So yeah, there's ancient Greek heritage in the area. They're always finding more and more runes and they're always finding more and more things as they continue to dig up the area. So it's a pretty interesting little fascinating bit of history. So bringing this back to our time today, Crimea has nationalistic, cultural, and historical significance, at least to Putin. I'm not sure how much the Russian people at large feel that way and feel that connection to Crimea, but Putin is certainly trying to establish it as much as he can. But that's just one layer here. As we move deeper, we can see that there are other things that the Russians are trying to do here and something things that you could say are much more tangible that is Russia that Russia is trying to achieve that Russia is trying to accomplish here and one of the things that they are trying to do is that they are trying to effectively shut down Ukrainian access to the Black Sea and not only that in this area here out here we'll bring up you guys appreciated the the colors and everything like that last time so Let's uh, use them again. But yeah, so if there were some basically natural gas deposits kind of discovered around this area of Crimea, and that was just before the, that was shortly before the invasion and annexation of the peninsula by Russia. So there, there's a lot of speculation there that Russia was concerned that if Ukraine was able to capitalize on these uh, reserves and on these natural gas fields, that they could undercut Russia as a major energy supplier to Europe and undercut one of its most valuable sources of revenue. And if I'm not mistaken, they were Ukraine, the Ukrainian government was pretty close to signing some deals to actually bring in companies like Shell to begin to explore the area and see what was there. But when the peninsula was annexed, that deal basically fell apart. All right, so that is one potential consideration to have is in regards to energy. And then there's the, basically the strategic and military calculations that would go into owning this peninsula. One of the things that Russia was afraid of was that Ukraine would cancel their lease on the ships in Sevastopol, which is where the Russian Navy, the Russian Black Sea Navy, was stationed essentially because that is Russia's only warm water port, which means that it doesn't freeze over in the winter. So Russia was very concerned about Ukraine moving in a westward direction. They might lose that lease on that port. 
and might lose one of their key strategic locations in the Black Sea. So let's say you're Vladimir Putin and you were trying to plan a war long-term against Ukraine. And if you were to do that, one of the places you would want to take, in fact, probably the best place you could want to take and hold initially is the peninsula of Crimea, because that gives you a massive amount of strategic leverage over the country. So I think it was very possible that long before this war actually happened, Vladimir Putin was planning it, and he was planning on taking Crimea as a key base in that war. And why would that be so important? There's a couple of reasons as to why. So as we briefly touched on, owning this area, owning Crimea, basically allows Russia to project its navy outward, and they could easily use their navy to come out of Sevastopol and block access out of the Black Sea for Ukraine. And this would have obvious economic ramifications, which it has already happened for Ukraine, not being able to export the majority of its goods. Odessa is a pretty, pretty big port. They ship a lot of goods through there, grain, steel, potash, all kinds of important goods go through that port. And if Russia controls it, that gives them a huge amount of leverage over Ukraine. So there's that aspect that it gives them pretty sizable naval dominance in the Black Sea. And then, of course, there is the aspect of conventional warfare. So if you own the Crimean Peninsula, not only do you have this very defensible little gap here, you can strike out from here with uh, missiles, with artillery, with whatever you want. So you can use this as a very easily defendable, effectively fortress and bombard Ukraine from it without them being able to do a whole lot against you. Of course, they can bombard you back, but taking the peninsula would require a pretty significant investment in terms of manpower and military resources. And it could also entail a lot of casualties as moving into a place like this. But yeah, moving into a place like this, it's going to funnel in a lot of uh, your troops. It's going to be difficult to cross. Actually, let's zoom in a little bit. Let's get a real good look at this crossing because as we get closer, it looks even worse. As you can see, in terms of land, there is just a tiny, tiny spit of land here, which connects the Crimean Peninsula to the mainland. And then, of course, we do have other small areas here. In fact, this area can sometimes drain out. I believe it's called the shoal. In any case, these lakes and, and some of these lakes and areas can drain out and you can cross over them then. But obviously that's a limited time. And if you were going to attack, they could probably anticipate it. So still, it's not going to be an easy operation regardless of which way you slice it. But again, I do think that there are some things that Ukraine could do and we'll get into those things. So anyway, just from a hard scratch military perspective, owning Crimea cripples Ukraine in a huge way. So long as Russia owns this peninsula, they will have a sizable amount of leverage over the government of Ukraine, no matter who they are. They can decide to shut off their trade. They can decide to fuck with whatever they want. If another war breaks out, they can, of course, 
decide to bomb them. Whatever they need to do, they can do it through Crimea, and there's very little that Ukraine can actually do to stop it. So again, if your goal as Vladimir Putin is to invade Ukraine or take as much as possible, holding that extremely important strategic point is absolutely something you're not going to want to give up unless you have no choice. So that's another layer is we have kind of the historical significance, the political significance, and the military significance. And the last thing I want to touch on briefly here is I guess you could call it the demographic significance. Over the last decade, this area has become progressively more Russian. So it makes sense that the Russians would want to import as many of their own citizens as they, as they could into the area and export as many Ukrainian citizens. I'm sure that plenty of them fled when the peninsula was annexed. And ever since this war has happened, I'm sure that this area has only become more and more Russified, uh, particularly given its importance to Vladimir Putin. So this is not the Crimea of 10 years ago. And if Ukraine is able to unify and take back the peninsula, there remains a very serious concern of what you do with the now enlarged ethnic Russian population. Because we have seen this card eagerly played by Vladimir Putin and played by other dictators in the past, I might add, which is this defense of the ethnic minorities in another country. And we now have a sizable, I guess you could say ethnic, it's probably an ethnic majority now in the Crimean Peninsula of Russians. What is going to happen when Ukraine retakes that peninsula? What are these civilians going to do? Are they going to resist? Are they going to flee back to Russia? Are they going to just accept the new, the new government? Who knows? But that in and of itself is a serious issue. But then, of course, looking into the future, there's the even bigger issue of not just Vladimir Putin, but any potential Russian leader in the future can play the I'm defending my, my people who are being prosecuted in your country card and use it to invade Ukraine at any point. So effectively, they can just manufacture this causes belly due to the fact that you have so many ethnic Russians in Crimea, and that can always be a potential a boiling over point in the future. And that I would say, I don't really know what we can do about. That would require a lot of time. And probably if Ukraine were able to take Crimea back, that is something that would resolve itself with time. But that being said, it is something that should be thought about and it should be factored in when you're thinking about any kind of future peace deal. But now let's just take our conversation back to the current day. So current day, where we're sitting is we're sitting at, of course, the classic unstoppable force meets an immovable object type of scenario. Neither side is willing to give any kind of ground unless I think there is some sort of decisive military victory, which could spur peace talks. But obviously they would be one-sided peace talks by whichever side garners that victory. So that's where we are. We are at the point where this war isn't over until one side gives up its claim on Crimea and neither side looks like they're anywhere close to doing that. So let's talk about how Ukraine could potentially take back and take over the Crimean Peninsula. Then I think we'll end our conversation about it there. So what 
could Ukraine do to take back the peninsula? Let's look at some military. Actually, let's see if I can bring up a military map here, and we'll use something that has active front lines on it. All right, this map looks good. It looks like it's pretty up to date as of our recording. We could see we can look here at Buckbit where the major fighting is happening, and there have been a lot of talks about the Wagner Group and the Russians finally making some significant progress. And it definitely looks like they've made some progress as we're talking here, particularly in the north. Things are not looking very good. But the major thing I do want to stress is that the fact of the matter is that Ukraine has been able to hold on to this position for so long against such sustained attacks and such sustained offensive force is definitely something to be commended. Unfortunately, I do think that Bakhmut will fall eventually. I have been hearing that for months and months and months and months. I think it'll happen one day, probably, maybe. I just don't know when that day is. But I always think the important thing to remember here is that the fact that they were able to hold on for so long is really quite extraordinary. In any case, I don't really want to get too much into the Battle of Bakhmut. That's not what we are here to talk about currently, but I just was going to check to make sure that it was up to date because that is where the most up-to-date fighting is happening. All right, so let's talk about what Ukraine could do to retake this peninsula and what they could do without really, there's no, I want to zoom in between those two. This one's too far out, but whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. In any case, so we've talked a little bit about this before, but what Ukraine's best ploy or what the Ukrainian best strategy to retake Crimea would be is some sort of starve them out and surround them strategy. So what would that look like? The first thing they would need to do before they could even think about that is they're going to have to retake Melitopol, not Mariupol, Melitopol. So yeah, I know it's a very, very similar sounding cities. So what the Ukrainians would need to do effectively is they would need to break through here in this Zaporizhian line. And let's use a different color. What will stand out for us here? We'll use yellow. Yellow's good. So in any case, so what they would need to do is they need to make some kind of breakthrough here. If, if we zoom in, we'll zoom in later. I can't zoom in when I've got the marker on. But yeah, this area is mostly plains. This is mostly traversable terrain, but the thing is this line has been pretty stagnant really since the war started. This line has pretty much not moved at all since the initial Russian advances. It stands to reason there's probably some sizable defenses there, but regardless, if they could break through here, and this would definitely be a lot easier task than breaking through the Crimean Peninsula, and you know they're going to have to break through here to retake the country. You break through here at this Zaporizhian line, you move down, you take Melitopol. Not only is this important for a couple reasons, but the main thing here is, as you can see, it kind of juts in here. It's got a nice little jut, which makes it, uh, one, it makes it like a, a excellent point to hold. So if they could take this point, not only is this now currently a huge supply hub for the Russians, because all of their supplies now, maybe not all of them, but a huge amount of their supplies travel overland, have to travel to the city where they can get distributed along the Russian front lines. 
So you take that city, you cut off the massive Russian supply depot, which supplies the southern Russian front here. And because it's kind of jutted in here, it makes it so you don't actually have to push all the way down. You've got less ground that you actually have to take. And so let's say there's some sort of Ukrainian offensive and they're able to take, they're able to take this ground, right? It, it's a lot less ground to traverse than right having to go all the way down here or what have you. So yeah, you take, take this area and you cut off the major supply to the Russians, not just in Crimea, but on the southern banks of the Dieppe River. Then moving along from there, you don't even need to necessarily storm across the river or you don't necessarily need to storm into the Crimean Peninsula. Once you take this city, you have a huge advantage in terms of what you can do. So let's say this has become, now this whole area has become Ukrainian territory and the Russians have been split in half effectively. Now this area has lost its major supply route. And then you look, of course, at the Kerch Strait Bridge, which yes, is now somewhat operational. It's still not fully operational, but you move the Ukrainian armed forces into this region. Now you're talking about having much better positions to strike at this bridge and destroy this bridge and take it down and potentially forever. And that is the next big part of the strategy is you've got to take out this bridge. So you take out, you take this major supply hub, you take out the bridge, and now the only way the Russians can get supplies is they'll have to come in, they'll have to come in by sea. The issue there is that Ukraine has demonstrated that they have the ability and capacity through drones, missiles, and other weapons, not just imported Western weapons, these are domestic homemade Ukrainian weapons, that they have the ability to strike at ships coming into Sevastopol. They have the ability to harass supplies going into that major port. And right now it's effectively a dead port. The Russians aren't using it. There's no commercial shipping. There's no military shipping. It's being unused. And the Russians could use it if they had to. But again, supplies are coming across the Black Sea here are going to be extremely vulnerable to Ukrainian drones and missiles. And it would be quite a task to supply so many soldiers in such a small area over oversee with these slow moving, hard to defend transports. It would be a very difficult proposition for the Russians to say the least. And at that point, you've got a huge, they got a huge Russian battle group here effectively surrounded and cut off. They can't get supplies because their mainland routes have been cut off. They can't get supplies because the bridge is out and they can't get supplies overseas because the Ukrainians keep sinking their transports. At this point, it would be a very difficult position for the Russians. This would be the way that Ukraine could retake the Crimean Peninsula without having to storm across and endure horrendous casualties is to basically surround the Southern Russian army group and starve them out through supplies. And they can weaken them that way to the point where they're able to either starve them into submission or able to attack a, a severely weakened opponent. So anyway, that would be, I think, 
Ukraine's best long-term strategy for this war is to try and cut off the Southern Russian army group. It's got some of the best troops there, some of the best equipment there. And if it gets cut off, it's, it's looking really bad for Russia. So I think that's going to end our conversation on Crimea for now. Like I said, until one side cedes this peninsula, peace is not going to happen. Even if they actually signed some sort of ceasefire, it would just effectively be a temporary peace deal because whichever side doesn't own the peninsula would still have a claim and be willing to resurrect it at an opportune time. So I think it's got to be resolved probably through decisive military combat that seems to be the only possible way forward right now which is unfortunate but that's the situation we're in so let's end off i know i had a little bit of a downer so let's end off with our feel-good story here and we've talked about things like water production before on the show and how important that is and desalinization and i can't believe i missed this story but i found it recently and i wanted to share it with you guys because it's in that vein and it's just such a genius idea. It's like, how the hell did nobody think of this? It's unbelievably smart. Unfortunately, this is only like a theoretical analysis, which they have done, like a very small scale of production. This is not technology which is going to be deployed tomorrow and needs to be explored more. But obviously, it's showing a lot of potential. So let's read it. Researchers propose new structures to harvest untapped source of fresh water. This is from December 6th of 2022. And this comes from the University of Illinois. So almost a limitless supply of fresh water exists in the form of water vapor above the Earth's oceans, yet it remains untapped, researchers said in a new study from the University of Illinois. It is the first to suggest an investment in new infrastructure capable of har harvesting oceanic water vapor as a solution to limited supplies of fresh water in various locations around the world. So that's the novel idea he has, they have here to basically harvest the fresh water that gets evaporated from the oceans by the sun. And like, it's so genius. Like, how did nobody think of this? And there probably is going to be some substantial hurdles into getting this implemented on a large scale. That being said, the idea of harvesting fresh water from already evaporated ocean water, though, which is obviously we're not, we're, it's just using the sun's already existing energy to evaporate it and we're just collecting it. It seems like a very intelligent solution to a lot of problems. So let's read further. The study led by a civil and environmental engineering professor and the Prairie Research Institute director, Parivan Kumar, evaluated 14 water stress locations across the globe for feasibility of a hypothetical structure capable of capturing water vapor from above the ocean and condensing it into fresh water, and to do so in a manner that will be feasible for the continued outlook of climate change. Water scarcity is a global problem and has come home to here in the United States regarding the sinking levels of water in the Colorado River Basin, which affects the whole Western United States, Kumar said. However, in subtropical regions, like in the Western United States, Nearby oceans are continuously evaporating water because there is enough solar radiation due to very little cloud coverage throughout the year. Previous wastewater recycling, cloud seeding, and desalinization techniques have only met limited success, the researchers said. Though deployed in some areas across the globe, desalinization plants face sustainability issues 
because of the brine and heavy metal-laden wastewater produced, so much so that California has recently rejected measures to add new desalinization plants. However, I don't think this is taking into account that cool invention that we talked about a couple shows ago, which uses the energy of the ocean's waves to desalinate water. In any case, continuing on, eventually we will find a way to increase the supply of fresh water as conservation and recycled water from existing sources, albeit essential, will not be sufficient to meet human needs. We think that our newly proposed method can do that on large scale, said Kumar. The researchers performed an atmospheric economic analysis of the placement of hypothetical offshore structures, 110 meters in width and 10 meters in height. Through their analysis, the researchers conducted that capturing moisture over ocean surfaces is feasible for many water-stressed regions worldwide. The estimated water yield for the proposed structures could provide fresh water for large population centers in the subtropics. One of the most robust projections of climate change is that dry regions will get drier and wet areas will get wetter. The current regions experiencing water scarcity will likely be even drier in the future, exasperating the problem. And unfortunately, people continue moving to water-limited areas like the southwestern United States. However, the projection of increasingly arid conditions favors the new vapor harvesting technology. Climate projections show that ocean vapor flux will only increase over time, providing even more freshwater supply, Haraman said. So the idea we are proposing will be feasible under climate change and provides a much-needed and effective approach for adapting to climate change, particularly to vulnerable populations living in arid and semi-arid regions around the world. Researchers said that one of the most elegant features of this proposed solution is that it works like the natural water cycle. The difference here is that we can guide where the evaporated water goes from the ocean, Dominguez said. When Preven approached me with this idea, we both wondered why nobody had thought to use it before. It seemed like such an obvious solution and it hasn't been done. And I think it's because our researchers are so based on land-based solutions, but our studies show that other options do exist. The researchers said the study opens the door for more novel infrastructure investments and it can effectively address the increasing global scarcity of fresh water. Ooh, okay. Anyway, I thought that that was super interesting. So wanted to leave you guys after all this depressing war talk with at least something that is kind of uplifting, something that's new, something that's interesting. And just put that idea in your head because like I said, this is so cool to me. I can't believe nobody has thought about something like this before. And it'll be interesting to see like 10 years from now, are they collecting water and these like, I don't know. I wish it showed like what their structure looked like in my mind. It's kind of like a balloon with, with like a, like some sort of mirrors or something like strapped underneath it and it just like floats around. And then as the water evaporates, like the mirrors like, or they feed down into a basin where fresh water is collected. I don't know. That's just what I think it would feasibly be like. Like I said, I wish they showed a picture, but who knows in the future we have like all these balloons floating over the ocean, extracting fresh water vapors for us. So. It's definitely feasible, definitely something to think about. And with that, we are going to head off. We are finished with the show. Got no real wrap up things here for you guys. Just want to thank you guys for watching. This has been DeConrad. Signing off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.